Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are The Natural Selection. On today's show, I think some reptiles are sexy. It's a big statement. An eyelash viper. I'd snog an eyelash viper. I I would like to say that in my life, (laughs) kissing generally comes before the piss fetish. (laughs) So... I'm going into porcupines specifically. (laughs) That's a Valentine's Day special. (laughs) Jack. Ronnie. Welcome back. It's exciting to be here. It It feels like a long time since we sat in a studio. It does. We have done Mexico. We've done the Navy. We had a very exciting July onwards to 2023. Yeah. Not to say that january to june was <laughs> poor <laughs> you know exactly but we're back yeah doing what geese do the goose juice in its purest form exactly classic goose distilled for your listening yeah and i figured we'd start because we've done a christmas episode mm. we've done a somewhat now infamous episode do you want to take a guess at which one I mean? Is it the sea otters? It's the people versus sea otters, <laughs> yeah. where we looked at some of the unsavoury romantic behaviours yeah. that some animals usually deem to be cute partaking. Yeah. And some sponsors deem a bit too close to the bone. <laughs> <laughs> and it occurred to me, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. It is! And so, we've done a Christmas special, we've done some love specials, here we go. Where's that Venn diagram taking us? The Valentine's Day specials. It's the Goose Valentine's Day special. Just what you need to give to your significant other. <laughs> Send them the link. You don't need anything more. If you're, if you're short of cards, flowers, or chocolates, just drop them the URL to this episode, and it will fire up your romantic life yeah. once more. Just have it on in the background, listener. Exactly. Because <laughs> what more could you want? <laughs> than the soft, lilting voices of Jack and Roddy. (laughs) (laughs) To soundtrack your Valentine's Day evening. Exactly. So, I thought we should shine a light on the good guys. Okay. Because for anyone unfamiliar, for anyone just joining us, do go back and listen. The People vs. Sea Otters was an episode we made that did attract some attention because we basically drew back the curtain on the sexual proclivity and behaviours of otters, dolphins and ducks, creatures that Disney would like you to think are cute and we wanted to expose them as what they truly are, which is ultimately sexual deviance (laughs) of the worst and highest order. Yeah. I mean, they'd, they'd all be in jail if they were humans. Oh, unquestionably so. <laughs> yeah. Unquestionably so. So, what I wanted to put forward in this episode was essentially the ugly, evil animals who actually do really cute things. Oh, I like this, yeah. We'll okay. flip the script yeah. on the whole situation. Now, I really do want to stress that my plan was to try and find ugly animals who do cute behaviours. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Jack, if there are any romantic animals you're aware of that come to mind. Um, so things like turtle doves and stuff, obviously, because it's become like a byword for mm. uh, romance. Or, you know, look at those little turtle doves. Or lovebirds or things like that. People like swans and things that met. There's a whole mate for life thing that's yep. going on there. So they're the kind of things that come to my mind if I immediately think animals and romance. Yeah. So in my effort to find the romantic behaviours of animals, 
specifically looking for the weird, ugly animals doing romantic stuff. Mm. Here's where we landed. So, which would you like first? Ooh. The cannibalizing, the projectile firing, the intimidating, the stabbing, the piss fetishing, or <laughs> the kissing? <laughs> I will take. Uh, I Well, I think, given that it's Valentine's Day, yeah. I'll start with the kissing. Thank you, you very much. You want to start with the kissing? I think that's where most... It should generally start. I, it sh- it I, I would like to say that in my life, <laughs> kissing generally comes before the piss fetish. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Here we go. You've chosen wisely. Because this is the animal which put this whole episode idea into my mind great when i thought where are the weird animals doing cute things Mm. (laughs) now vampire bats kiss each other pause with mouthfuls of regurgitated blood i thought we were supposed to be (laughs) redeeming them i look i tried i had such a vision for this i had such a vision i was like let's come back valentine's day special and let's show everyone the romantic things that they never knew but Animals are just too weird. Yeah, they are weird. So, there are three species of vampire bat. All of them are known to do this. Blood is not the most sustaining food choice, and vampire bats are the biggest vertebrate, or the biggest mammal, certainly, which lives exclusively off blood. I had not thought about that, but of course. Yeah, and because it's so sort of poor as a food choice, if they go three days without feeding, they can die of starvation. Right. And bats might not go out of the roost because the weather's, if it's chucking it down, they can't fly and all the rest. So anyway, so pears will regurgitate blood into another's mouth. It can be a life-saving act, but it also plays a huge part in building social bonds. So when you say pears, yep. are they romantically involved? Because there's got, surely, you're not just doing this with next door neighbour. It's the postman. N- it's not even... Well, so from a social bonding perspective, researchers have seen bats which have no relationship oh, whatsoever... That's, that's, no, that's too much. <laughs> ...who may become isolated at either ends of the roost, and they will start grooming each other. They'll then move on to mouth licking before swapping the regurgitated blood in a kind of mother bird French kiss from hell type way. <laughs> I, no, I, no, 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 I just, I'd want them to be some, there needs to be more level of uh, romantic involvement. Okay, okay, well we can build up to all that, but sure. we've kicked off with yeah. the kissing. Okay. So. Oh, it's, tw- it's 2024, you know, actually who am I to judge? <laughs> let me just, let me just check myself for a minute there. Well, having said who are you to judge, would you like the cannibalizing, the projectile firing, the intimidating, the stabbing, or the piss fetishing? So I'll take, uh, I feel like I'm on a game show. I'll take uh, stabbing for 100, please. Okay. (laughs) Right. A species of sea slug found off the coast of... Oh, do we need the Thunderdome klaxon? (laughs) We do indeed. (laughs) Bing, bing. Okay, Australia. (laughs) The Thunderdome didgeridoo has been sounded. (laughs) So, a species of sea slug found off the coast of Australia has been recorded as stabbing its mate during the act. Great. The species is a simultaneous hermaphrodite, meaning individuals have both male and female sets of organs, and they sort of mate and swap over at the same time going both ways. 
For its male organ, the slug has a two-pronged penis consisting of the bulb, which transfers the sperm, and a separate needle-like appendage called a penile stylet that stabs and injects partners with a fluid containing sex hormones. I went on such a journey through that sentence. Uh, Dude, if you think that's (laughs) like this, there are... There are further sentences. The penile stylet sounds like something they'd release alongside an iPad. (laughs) (laughs) This behaviour is known as... If you think about sets of words. This behaviour is known as traumatic secretion transfer. Oh, God. It's actually not that uncommon across sea slugs. However, what gets weird is where they stab their partner. Of five species studied by researchers in Germany, so, you know, imagine that particular (laughs) thesis. What are you doing today just looking at horny slugs stab each other? So of five species studied, three were found to stab each other all over the body. Uh, Right. One was found to stab the other near the female reproductive organ. Hey, that's... Effort. A for effort. If you need to get your secretions anywhere, get them, you know, get it over the touchline. They're almost there to normal sex. Yep. However, one, Cyphopteran species one, that's all I've got here. What? That's some Doctor Who level bullshit, isn't it? Cyphopteran species one was the only one of the group that consistently and exclusively stabbed its partner between the eyes. (laughs) <laughs> right between the eyes. That's the money shot. To which a researcher involved said, if you see two animals injecting fluid into each other's heads during mating, that's just weird. Even if you work in this area, it's just weird. <laughs> oh, right. <sighs> to go one further, Jack, no, I don't want to. how long do you think sea slug sex lasts? Oh, is it going to be... It's going to be hours, isn't it? What, 40 minutes. Okay. During right. which both are continually stabbed. Between the eyes. Yeah. Uh, the speculative idea as to why they're targeting there is because that's where the nervous system is exactly located. So they're kind of getting what? it bang where it needs to be. Does it need to be there? Well, <laughs> because counterthinking suggests that basically wherever a sea slug gets stabbed, given their biology, it will quickly reach the nervous system anyway. So why bother? Ah, uh, but does it? So, but the, so the, the sperm. Let <laughs> me fumbling over my words. Does the sperm need to get to? Because obviously, right. In sorry, sorry. Right. It's not the sperm they're injecting. The okay. other penile head delivers the sperm. Oh. This penis head just injects them with pheromones to get them juiced up. Right. Ah. See, I thought they were trying to deliver the sperm no. into the nervous system. No. So this is just like some hang on. So this is just like some chemical Sex intoxication steroids. to make them horny. Uh, yeah, I mean, if they're not horny already because they're mid, you know, they're involved in a forty-minute sex session. But that, but then, as slugs, <laughs> we are fumbling through this segment. Um, but like, okay, well, I think what I'm trying to say is, if it's not to get them all juiced up, then what's the point of it? Because they're already mating. So what does it do? It injects partners with fluid-containing sex hormones. That's all I've got. Mm, okay. Maximum size of this animal? If you say three metres, I'm walking out. <laughs> <laughs> Five millimetres. Five millimetres. Okay, good. Then I don't ever have to see it. <laughs> right. Okay. 
cannibalizing, projectile firing, intimidating, piss fetishing. Mm. Let me. What do you think, listeners? Yeah, me too. Piss fetishing, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Remember, this is the Valentine's episode <laughs> where I tried. I really did. I was Googling for so long trying to find nice things. Nice things that weren't boring because it's just like, oh, yeah. these swans yeah. are happy. Yeah. That's not a segment, is it? No. You've not redeemed the snail, though. The sea slug. No. Well, let's see if I can redeem either porcupines or giraffes. <laughs> right. So... I'm going into porcupines specifically. <laughs> That's a Valentine's Day special. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. All right. Specifically North American porcupines. <laughs> right. Yeah. However, this may be ubiquitous across all of them. I can think of few animals who need to be more logistically careful of each other's bodies in the act of coitus. <laughs> That's fair. Than yeah. porcupines. Yeah. So, in addition to the very real and present dangers of being living pincushions, female porcupines are fertile for about 8 to 12 hours a year. What? Uh, yeah. Also, can I just say, do you think that the sea slugs look really enviously at porcupines? <laughs> They're just like, oh, they could fucking stab me all over. Uh, well, again, just wait till you see where this goes. Okay, right. Although, 8 to 12 hours a year. I know, yeah. Like I said, this is what I'm talking about is specifically North American ones, yeah. just because that's there's a lot of people talking about this behavior across porcupines, but then one of them just said specifically North American. So I'm just okay. framing it as specifically North American, and it also involves tree climbing, but then some others said about ground. So I think it could be across all porcupines, okay. but you know, yeah. I'm kind of unclear if it's in all of them. But it seems to be, but then the only specifics are about the North American. So anyway, 8 to 12 hours a year. The female will lure males to her in preparation for this window by releasing pheromones. Uh -huh. This will draw a gang of males to her. The mm. gang of males will then fight each other for dominance and the right to mate. And okay. once you've got your champion male, the female may well be fertile, but she may not yet be willing. Oh. And so to finally lure her in, and seal the deal, so to speak, mm -hmm. after a quick session of nose rubbing to mm -hmm. introduce each other, yep. you know. So far, so Richard Curtis. Yeah, very um, lovely. With a bit of nose rubbing. He will then stand on his hind legs. And, <laughs> Jack, we just have to embrace this next set of words. <laughs> Walk towards her with a fully erect penis while urinating. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Good. It's worth noting, and I say this just because of how many articles chose to note this specific fact, <laughs> that the urinating is not a gentle stream at standard... <laughs> no, no, we are not describing the, 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 uh, the velocity of urination. <laughs> it's not a gentle stream at standard bladder pressure, but rather a series of short, sharp, high-pressure bursts. Oh, rapid fire so that's he's got that. it on auto yeah <laughs> he's taken off the safety should she approve of his pheromones and why shouldn't she mating proceeds if she does not then luckily for her and uniquely in the case of female porcupines she is very well equipped to deter the advances of say a male exposing himself at full mast walking towards her <laughs> Oh, that is a risky strategy, isn't it? It's a hell of a dance that porcupines are playing. <laughs> wow. Okay. <Yeah. clears throat> but I mentioned giraffes as well. You did. So, male giraffes 
can only tell if a female is fertile by... I think I know this one. Is it by tasting the urine? It's by tasting yeah, it. It's, yeah. 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 So, do you know particularly why giraffes have to do this? No. So, many male animals may have to smell the female's urine. Yes, so I've seen... I, I know that lots of, like, ungulates and deer and things like that will do that. But, um, yeah, I know that giraffes taste it. for so. I have no idea why. However, in most cases where the males are smelling it, they're doing it from the ground. Now, what I read was that basically giraffes are too tall to do this. Oh. And he has to get right up in her business as she is expelling the fluid. And so he will nudge the female a number of times to get her, to prompt her to assume the position, wherein she will widen her stance so he can get right up in the business and get straight into the mouth. Wow. Uh, This is a practice or a behavior rather called flemen. Don't like that. There are a number of animals which do it. Um, And the extra fun bit... Bulls will need to test and approach an average of 150 females. Oh, that's too many. In order to find the right one. No, that, that's just it. He's using that as an excuse, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to. I've got to. You've done 75, Jeff. No, I've got to do more. 150. Uh, okay, we've got three more. Cannibalizing, projectile, or intimidating? I would like to choose the one that I am feeling right now. Intimidation, please. Okay. <laughs> I'm intimidated by all these hardcore animal sexcapades. Okay, right. Water striders, pond skaters. Oh. Yeah? Yeah. Now this, I will be honest, and I just want to stress it again. I had such a vision for this episode of redeeming weird animals. Nothing's been redeemed. Nothing's been redeemed. Everything's been damned to oblivion. (laughs) But pond skaters are hellish. I had no idea of this. A lot of these are, you know... I'm just relaying facts. So, just to start off this section, a quote in the article from one of the writers was, the worst sex you have ever had pales in comparison to what female water skaters have to put up with. (laughs) Now, using high-speed cameras and electron microscopes, the team of evolutionary ecologists involved in the study uncovered the mystery behind the male water striders' inordinately spiked antenna, which they use to grasp and cling on to the female until she submits to his advances. I would say if you need a high-speed camera to film your sex, you're probably not doing it right. Researcher says, the males have evolved some very sinister grasping structures. They have these very well-crafted antennae that actually grasp and clamp onto the female's eye. Oh, what? Yeah. Yeah, right. That's how they're holding her. Yeah. Where they want her. They're holding her by the eye. I know. But the intimidation bit, as if that wasn't enough, is that... It is. uh, (laughs) (laughs) It very much is. (laughs) Well, basically, once they're clamped and wrenched on, uh, some species of male water striders basically start to, like, vibrate or flap on the surface in such a way that will attract predators... to intimidate the female. Oh, so it's like, if you don't mate with me, you're going to die. I'm I'm bringing fish to us. Whoa, that's a a ballsy move. It's not even ballsy. I mean, it's past ballsy. It's like we're in deep, dark territory here. But It's like, mate with me or we both get eaten and do it fast. Yeah, the quote, the threat is basically explained as, let me have sex with you and I'll stop making vibrations on the water's surface, which will otherwise lead to us both being swallowed by a passing fish. Oh, God. 
I know. There's a whole arms race happening between males and females in uh, water skaters, with some species of females having evolved basically shield-style chastity belts. But then the males dial it up, and I mean, arms race, right? I was going to say, I was almost, in my head, I was postulating a uh, a redemption for the water strider by saying oh well just putting the hands over the eyes it's a bit like you know, a bit blindfold a bit like you know going up behind <laughs> your partner and just putting your hands over the eyes and oh, being yeah. like surprise and then you did the whole vibrations thing and then the whole anti-male chastity belt and uh, i got nothing no yeah there's no like cutesy teehee no. honey i'm home yes it's yes straight out <laughs> yeah intimidation <laughs> yeah it's i'm home and also there's a serial killer coming if you don't have sex with me yeah so water striders horrific yeah don't forget to pre-order your flowers <laughs> for your partner right so we're left with cannibalizing and projectiles cannibalizing okay now this one i have to say i think is actually the most well known basically praying mantises ah, eat yes. the male heads and mm. spiders eat the males yeah uh in fact it's so well known it's the one i've got the least on yeah but i guess compared to the water striders this is very much the one where the females are landing the upper hand yeah yeah in the case of black widows the female can be more than twice the size of the male so to try and prevent becoming a snack as he approaches her he will take a few steps stop and vibrate every now and then so his movement doesn't seem like a fly and he effectively twerks her his way to her across the web um, so he's just like, I'm here, yeah. I'm coming. Knock, knock. He's not trying to sneak in. He's actually being like, yep. oh, no, let me in. I think it's like what these things drive home to me with the with the praying mantis and the spider there and with the water striders is just like, you know, some people are still like, what's the, you know, what's the meaning of life? It's quite clearly sex because like the extent that <laughs> the, the male, the male and female, male and female praying, uh, male praying mantis and spiders could just not have sex. And just lead a happy life, not being eaten. Male water striders could just not want sex. Could just chill out. And not and not have to, like, uh, go on this suicidal mission of attracting predators. But it's just that the lengths that evolution has gone to for sex and how all-consuming it is. If anyone, if, listener, if anyone, you hear, ever hear anybody talking about the meaning of life... Tell them about water striders. But don't do it on a first date. Don't do it. Don't do it on a first date. Do not do it on a first date. And do you know what? Probably don't even bring it up on Valentine's Day. No. Definitely don't make like, (laughs) you know, a whole topic about it. Don't do that. (laughs) To put out into the into the world. Forever. Digital footprint listener. Oh good. So we're left with projectile firing. Okay. Now, this is an animal that I mean we haven't really spoken about water striders, right? But this Mm. is a bit more unique of an animal okay. it's not something we've ever spoken about and it's something quite outside our wheelhouses Ooh. it's the argonaut or the argonaut octopus which is kind of like a nautilus yeah that's all i've got yeah <laughs> it is isn't it yeah so it's a sort of octopus that creates a shell no, I don't know. I actually think I'm thinking of the Nautilus, so I don't even. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to hop on the old tinterwebs. Argonaut octopus. Whoa. Okay, I've got pictures of the Argonaut octopus up here, and it is like a Nautilus. But do you want to describe a Nautilus? So a Nautilus is. They're a bit like. I mean, when I think of Nautilus, I think of 
the the famous ammonite fossils. Yeah. But they're still alive. Yeah. So it's like the circular shell, and then poking out of it is an eye and the little tentacles. And they sort of swim around upside. Well, to, to us, we th- we imagine shells, and we think of snail shells, where the opening is at the bottom, facing the ground, but the nautilus sits at the top, uh, and the nautilus sort of body sticks out of the shell. And the argonaut octopus is a bit like that, but as though the shell was made out of uh, like tortellini pasta. Interesting. It, it's it's like see through and looks fleshy and. Or pay tracing paper or something like that. So I think there's actually like a couple slightly different names for it. Uh, I've got Argonaut. I've got Paper Nautilus. Yeah, okay. Well, Paper, yeah. Yeah. Um, Argonaut, it's the only, the world's only pelagic octopus. So mm. they live adrift in the sea um, as opposed to, you know, under rocks and where the other ones live. And like Jack says, they got the tentacles coming out and then this papery shell. The females can be over two meters in length. What? But the males are less than 10% her size. So less than 20 centimeters for the males. Jesus, that's a big difference. Yeah. So the sexual dimorphism poses the question of how do you actually complete the act in such circumstances? Well, Jack, the males, who in this particular instance I think should all be called Jason. Right. Jason and the Argonauts. Oh, I see, I see, okay. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was nothing more highbrow there. (laughs) I thought, okay. Nope. Uh, Have solved the issue by creating one of the world's weirdest sex adaptations going. The tiny male throws a modified arm containing his sperm, which is called a hectoctylus, at the female, which will then swim towards the female. Oh, fuck off. Right? Her mantle, which is the sack that stores her organs, finding its way inside and subsequently fertilizing the eggs. That's mad. Yeah. Do you want to know what's madder? Yes. The male's modified arm develops in a pouch under his eye until it's called upon, at which point it explodes out of the cavity and swims across to her. And it's got suckers, and it wiggles its way inside her, because they do have these shells. It wiggles its way inside her shell and fertilizes her. That's insane. Have you seen this? Are there any... Well, not in person, no. no. I haven't, you know. But are there any videos of it? So, well, first of all, there must be videos in some respect for us to know that the arm is swimming across there. But males will die soon after throwing their tentacle at the female. Um, and for a long time, no one had actually found a male... And so when these females were caught with all these hectoctylus in there, the researchers thought they were sort of parasitic worms. No one kind of knew what these weird wiggling things Extra were. Bits were. But the males will die shortly after throwing the tentacle at the female. However, unusually for cephalopods, the females don't die after laying their eggs oh. and they'll continue to grow and reproduce up to like two meters long. Wow. That's mad. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Wiggling, wiggling across the sea. Yeah. I'm exhausted. Yeah. Now, it's not all total doom and gloom in the world of animal romance. Right. And Christ knows we should actually do something involving things like bowerbirds Mm. and swans mating for life Mm. and 
set aside what we may think is boring <laughs> to try and bring some sort of some balance to the force exactly exactly and you know like i said i did i really did have an initial plan we went wildly off script but that doesn't mean that we can't wrap up with something positive mm-hmm. so allow me to introduce chris crow and walnut the crane is is chris a human chris is a human or a crow <laughs> chris is well i mean he <laughs> you know are nominatively determined <laughs> i didn't know whether chris crow was a crow and chris crow and walnut the crane could have been, could have gone but either way no no okay right now chris is a human of unknown human origins for the purpose of this story but i can give some backstory on walnut right and just to actually frame the whole thing chris is walnut's keeper right okay so we're talking a captive crane exactly and we're not going into chris's pedigree <laughs> but walnut hatched on the 2nd of july 1981 okay. at the international crane foundation in wisconsin mm-hmm. and this is all relevant to parent cranes mercury and amazon Ooh. now she is a white naped crane right. whose parents got to the center the crane foundation after having been intercepted from smuggling likely captured in the wild in china by poachers who were possibly sending them to either a private collection or maybe to be taxidermied but having been intercepted they were sent to this conservation center to be looked after now the birds can be quite demanding in terms of breeding these Mm. cranes because a breeding pair in the wild may need several to several hundred acres of wetlands And so this made Mercury and Amazon all the more special as captive breeders because they so readily produced eggs whilst in captivity. And this crane species is critically endangered. Oh, right. The other key thing about Mercury and Amazon is because they were illegally caught, they came from outside of the captive genetic stock and population. And so Mercury and Amazon brought with them a fresh influx of genes Mm. to this Noah's Ark captive insurance population for this critically endangered crane. Yeah, it's a topic we've covered before. It is. The importance of genetic diversity. Exactly. Now, in the 80s, crane rearing, Jack, as you well know, wasn't the sophisticated high-end jet-setting position that it is today. And while efforts were made to avoid imprinting, Right. On the chicks, some chicks who may have been too pecky with the other birds were perhaps separated from groups, received more human time. Rearing the baby chicks was handed over to volunteers or in some instances the volunteers' kids. Oh, right. Okay. Who, who would maybe just know how to break up fights and little else. It was kind of chuck out food for the cranes and see what happens. Right, okay. Now, the issue here is that when it's time to find a suitable mate, some human-imprinted cranes would look to seek out something that looks like their presumed parent, Uh, which is, it would appear, what happened to Walnut. Oh! So we're not just talking about a a cre... Oh, is this... this is this a romantic relationship? Where, where, where is this going? Are we redeeming anything here? <laughs> I mean, we can't sink much lower than the water skaters. And so Walnut grew up in captivity as a crane so strongly imprinted on humans that as part of a captive breeding program for animals which mate for life, yeah. not only was this challenging, but she earned a reputation for herself. Going from zoo to zoo, it is rumoured that she pecked two separate suitors to death. Oh, my God. God. And remember, because her parents were this kind of magic influx of genes, she was quite... Valuable. Exactly. 
Now, no Until she started absolutely shanking all the other critically endangered cranes that she came across. Well, no zoo will actually admit to letting to, to saying that they let endangered cranes get pecked <laughs> to death on their watch. But whether or not she was killing the other cranes, the point is she was doing nothing to make any new ones. Yeah. So, in October 2004, she was transferred to the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, the SCBI, mm-hmm. for one last chance at motherhood. Fast forward a couple of months, December 2004, and Chris Crow, our esteemed human, right. nominatively determined bird-keeping <laughs> hero, starts working here, charged with the care of 17 cranes and 36 ducks. Just, that's your workload if you work there. <laughs> that was the job description. Yeah. So our two key players are now on the board. Right. Okay. Fast forward to spring. And it is determined through the white-naped crane stud book, which mm. is the type of thing which monitors the genetics in a captive population to make sure there's no inbreeding, says that Walnut, because of her special parents, is basically the most valuable genetic crane in captivity who's killing everyone. <laughs> right. And she should mate with Ray, Ooh. a fine crane two pens over. <laughs> However, Ray was already with Abigail. Oh... Shit. And the cranes mate for life. Yeah. So, artificial insemination it was. So, Crow and his colleague approached Walnut in her cage, caught her, wrestled her down, and artificially inseminated her with rays. You know, yeah, what needed to be done. Uh, For the diehards, if anyone's interested, artificially inseminating a crane includes the words gentle pressure to the back whilst massaging the cloaca. So... Just in case that's useful for tomorrow night, listener. <laughs> and it worked fine, and the eggs hatched. Hooray. Great. Now, as time went on with Chris working in and around Walnut, it became increasingly clear that she didn't see herself as a crane to him. A captive male crane, in clear view of Walnut, would try and woo her, initiating dances, but she had absolutely no interest. However, one summer, it became clear to Crow that Walnut was suddenly very interested in him. Oh, no. As he stopped by her yard, she began bowing her head, raising her wings, which is an invite to initiate the mating dance. Now, God knows why. He's admitted to feeling silly, but Crow figured why not and accepted the invitation, bowing his head and raising his arms back. He'd even try and do the male part of the song, which was described as a Homer Simpson woohoo <laughs> whenever he was alone around her. God, Chris. Right, we go into the winter and it winds down. But come next spring, Walnut's passion fired up again, greeting her keeper with head bells. Now, what would any rational, conservation-minded keeper think in this scenario, Jack, where artificial insemination is a rough and tumble affair for the animal? Oh, they're going to think, how can I use this to make more baby cranes? He's going to seduce that crane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'm taking the piss a little bit because Chris has basically said, if we could get her to do it without having to catch her, there's less risk of injury. It's much better for everyone involved and the crane. And, you know, she's rumoured to have killed two (laughs) suitors. She's ready and willing. So Crow got to work studying the dance of cranes Brenda and Eddie in a nearby enclosure. I love it when they all have names. It's like a sort of soap opera. Um, He also noticed that Brenda really liked it when Eddie brought her sticks, so Crow started presenting Walnut with sticks and straw to build a nest with. Sometimes she rejected his offerings. He has said she's real particular about the length and circumference of the sticks, and it changes from year to year. She knows what she wants. Exactly. So, having proved himself 
with the sticks. She started accepting these. The next step was getting her used to him touching her. He'd reach out and gently graze her tail feathers. Oh, is this going to be an erotica now? (laughs) It gets a little weird, right? (laughs) Okay. He would, and then he'd give her like a dead mouse as a treat. Oh, yeah. Yep. It is very kind of paint me like one of your French girls when you read this whole Titanic. Mills and Boone. Exactly. But one day, after some back petting, Mm. Walnut turned away from Crow, extended her wings, raised her tail, a clear indication... She was she was offering herself. She, it was there. Damn. And to be honest, the next bit that I've written out is a bit too Mills and Boone, so I'm actually <laughs> going to skip all that. No, no, no. I want at least one bit of this. Crow saw his moment and put a hand on Walnut's back and began rubbing her thighs, going through the motions of artificial insemination to get them both ready for March for the real thing. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, this <laughs> Oh, the next bit I quite... Oh, actually, let's just stick with the Mills and Boone thing for a minute. Tragically, Walnut found Crow to be a disappointing lover. (laughs) (laughs) After all the hype, the gift giving, the petting, he would be doing his hardest to get her fired up, making sure he was massaging just the right spot, like any good male crane lover should. And then when he'd stopped to change position, she'd walk off. Oh... (sighs) If it's working, just stick with it, Chris. <laughs> anyway, having figured it all out of where he, what he had to do where, they got into their rhythm, and again, with a healthy contribution from Ray, they tried again. She was willing, and she got artificially inseminated. Oh, so it worked. It worked. It did work. And they went on to produce five chicks this way, which was a major boom for the captive, critically endangered population and get her rare genes into the population yeah. and into circulation so they're no longer in danger of dying with her. That's cool. And the title of most genetically valuable crane has been passed to Amanda. <laughs> who is a crane that hopefully is a lot less particular well i mean you say that but having learned the tricks of the trade crow has worked his magic on amanda do we need to do we need to have a word with, <laughs> with chris crow but now all of that was very mills and boonesy and yeah. we flew pretty close to the bone um but as far as walnut the crane is concerned mm. crow is her mate for life oh it, is walnut still around now Walnut's still around, so cranes can live past 60 years old. Crow is four years older, so Crow's 47, Walnut's 43. Good ages. Crow has said that he would feel bad if he retired and she was still living. He visits her three times a day. Oh, my God. He brings her treats. She has, like, dummy eggs that she looks after. Yeah. And because they mate for life, they'll normally, like, swap, so one gets a chance off the nest. He'll go in and apparently go over to the nest and be like, go on, off you go, and she'll walk away and have a bath and do whatever she needs to do while he stands watch over the eggs, and then she comes back and sits back down on them. Like, this crane (laughs) fell in love with her keeper. Oh, that's cute. If we will allow ourselves that anthropomorphizing. (laughs) Yes. The two have been together over 10 years now. He still brings her sticks and nest materials, and though she never likes where he leaves it, she loves that he brings it to her all the same. Oh, that's Because cute. love, everyone, is about compromise. <laughs> <laughs> this romantic season, we could all be a little more Chris Crow. And a little less. And a little less Chris Crow. <laughs> and a little less any of the other animals I mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Be more walnut. Yeah. And Chris. Yeah. Just leave, yeah. 
leave the part out where it seems like you're a bit overly enthusiastic about artificially inseminating a bird. It's time for the birder session. Yeah. It's been a while. Yes, which this week, Jack, is called... Screaming Bloody Birder. Very nice. Lovely stuff. So for anyone who is not familiar, uh, this week's episode is sponsored by Birder. Birder is a free app which helps you reconnect with nature by guiding you through bird watching, providing challenges for you to complete to help you get outdoors. So for anyone who hasn't yet made a New Year's resolution, even though we're in February, perhaps now is the time to take up bird watching. Whether you're a novice or an experienced bird watcher, bird is a great way to get outside and see more nature. You can log a single sighting, you can log a whole birding session. There's even a new speedy mode on there for those of you who just want to get it done. But Team Goose, I hear you cry. I wouldn't know a pigeon from a postbox. <laughs> Well, don't worry. Bird is like a social media app in a sense that there's a whole community on there to help you ID it. Take a picture of what you see and others can guide you through it if they know what you're looking at. But if you're already very knowledgeable and want to help others, log on and help people ID their birds with the community posting pictures of what they've seen. But not just that. No. It also has an entire inventory of species ID and guides which can provide you with facts on the birds around you, suggest what you might be seeing based on the location, and for UK listeners can now help with birdsong as it now includes audio in the species guide so we at how many geese are taking a look at a couple standout species from these guides around the world Mm. and our bird of the week this week for valentine's Mm. is jack Mm. the diamond dove oh what do you know about diamond doves i know that they're little small doves they're really small actually um when i when i were a lad and i used to work (laughs) Uh, when I was at university in Leeds, I used to work, I used to volunteer at a exotic bird collection, a place called, I forgot the name, Harewood House, there it was. They used to have an exotic bird collection, and they used to have, in an aviary, they used to have these diamond doves, and they were tiny, they could like sit in the palm of your hand, really, really small. They're from Australia, I think. They are from Australia. So. Uh, and yeah, they're quite commonly kept in in aviaries and things, because they're so small. Yeah, so I've... Uh, got them up in front of me here they are absolutely minuscule um they're roughly the same size as a zebra finch whoa yeah I so, don't, yeah they are tiny i don't they, know they've got like a little long pointy tail but they're lovely little things could they be the smallest pigeon now that is a good question i off the top of my head certainly can't think of anything that beats them although there are little tiny ground doves and things as well but the diamond dove it's got to be it's got to be top 10 smallest pigeons podium finish top five smallest pigeons probably i'm sticking my neck out okay okay if anyone's got a smaller pigeon (laughs) send it in um they get their name from the bright splashes on their feathers giving them the appearance of a diamond they've got these lovely little sparkles um dotted around their body and for those of you on Birda in Australia where can you see these well they've been logged on the app in Kakadu National Park which is somewhere oh, I'd actually love to go I'd love to go to Kakadu yeah I think it's in the Northern Territories yeah it's I think it north. is yeah it's kind think... of big I feel like when I used to watch Steve Irwin yeah he was always showing up in Kakadu <laughs> Kakadu National Park and they uh, on the Valentine's note I don't know if you've got anything but I just remember that they would always in the little aviary in Yorkshire, they would just be sat together all the time. Aww. They'd just be sat on the branches and they'd be bunched up really close, probably because it's cold and they're used to Australian temperatures. <laughs> but they, they'd be like all snuggled up together, just sat there like doves often do. When well, they're bloody hell's this leads. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I mean, doves, of course, are so, I mean, birds in general are quite a Valentine's-y. Mm. You know, if this was a slug-watching app, we maybe <laughs> wouldn't have got a, a Valentine's shout-out. We do in, love a bird and romance, don't we? In quite the same way. Well, they're, they're literal lovebirds. Yeah. Like... Lovebirds, turtle doves, as we've said, and... Yeah, swans and crate. I think it's because they're just a bit extra, aren't they, when it comes to showing their love, I think. Birds, yeah. birds have got a serious affliction with PDA. Well, now speaking about birds, which are a little bit extra about showing their love, here is another dove from the app. So doves, I think, in general are quite mm. Valentine's-y. Again, herons, you know, not perhaps <laughs> featuring heavily Vultures. On, yeah, on the front of cards. But the bleeding heart dove, yeah. the Luzon bleeding Ooh. heart dove. Could mm. you describe this for us? They are, they're, they're not a big, you know, if you're thinking dove, then they're quite small. They could fit. It's been a while since I've seen one, but I think they could probably fit in my hand quite snugly. I've got quite big hands, but I think a, a bleeding heart dove could fit quite nicely in there. So little, little compact little things. They spend quite a lot of time walking around on the floor. But their most extraordinary feature is it, it looks like they've been shot in the chest. Yeah. And they've got this amazing... It's not... A lot of birds, and especially a lot of pigeons, we give pigeons a lot of flack, you know. We we sleep on pigeons and doves quite a lot. But actually, especially around the world, they're beautifully patterned and beautifully coloured. And birds, in a lot of sense, they're very cleanly patterned. It's like there's nice lines, and their wings are one colour, and their breast is another colour, and they've got lines and stripes and things like that. But for whatever reason, the bleeding heart dove has got this patterning that really just looks like its heart is bleeding because it's not there's no clear lines to it it's just sort of all bursting out of its chest and like it's it's, it's though it's like when someone gets dramatically shot and then you just see the pool of blood sort of starting to form that's what the bleeding heart dove looks like it's very romantic yeah i was i was i was kind of hoping you might pivot to something more romantic than getting shot in the chest no but, but it does but it, it does exactly what it looks like <laughs> So that is a lovely little dove. So a double dove, a double dove Valentine oh, special. Wow, double doved, double doved. Double Consider dove. yourself double doved, listener. <laughs> what more could you want for Valentine's Day? What more could you want? You could want to download Birder. Yes. So head to the App Store, head to the Google Play Store, head to any store, and ask at the checkout for Birder. <laughs> it's free, and it will really help you get outside and get birding and getting back into nature for 2024. Right. Shall we get back to the show? Let's do it. It's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Today's animal is submitted on Instagram by Jack Piercy and it is the tortoise. Specifically, I'm choosing the African spurred tortoise. So let's get to know our foe. Hailing from the southern edge of the Sahara Desert and into the Sahel region, this is the third largest species in the world and the largest species not found on an island. Males can weigh in at over 100 kilos and have a carapace length, so that's basically the shell, of almost a metre. It specialises in the semi-arid grasslands, savannas and shrublands, where the tortoise will excavate burrows in the ground to get to areas with more moisture and will spend the hottest parts of the day chilling in these burrows, which can be up to 15 metres deep and 30 metres long. They're not messing around when they're making these burrows. And here's a cool fact, because of the higher moisture content around these burrows, plants will often grow around them and also benefit from the tortoise's poo, fertilising them, which then allows the tortoise to eat the plants that are growing right outside of its home. 
Males are extremely territorial and have large spurs that stick out of their front, just below where their head sticks out of the shell, uh, that they use to ram each other when competing for breeding rights. When they reach 30 kilos or more as they're growing up, they're believed to be pretty much immune to all predators. And in the wild, their leading cause of death is being unable to right themselves when they flip over onto their backs. So, Roddy Shaw, <laughs> with all that in mind, how many African spurred tortoise are too many African spurred tortoise? They're coming in with a very good record of having no known predators. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is, yeah, as defense goes, pretty solid. Pretty solid, isn't it? But I mean, does a Galapagos, Galapagos tortoise doesn't have any either? No, no, no. Yeah. And like I say, these are the these are the biggest tortoise in the world, not found on an island. So they're pretty big. Hmm. It's only the Galapagos and the Aldabra, I think hmm. it is, that are bigger. Yeah, third biggest in the world. But then, you know. If they fall on their back. So, yeah. I mean, if they were in Robot Wars, they, they'd be coming up against the flipper robots. Those flippy guys. And they'd be fucked. Yeah. If you'd got Chaos 2 out there, <laughs> then it's game over for the tortoise. What's his name? Craig Charles. <laughs> yeah, Craig Charles in his big leather coat. Yeah, on the mics. Well, fuck it. Maybe that's it. <laughs> <laughs> if you push them onto the flipper, because in Robot Wars... They would have the um, flippers as well in the arena. Tortoise oh, on a yeah. flipper. You just get them on the flipper. Any listeners who don't know Robot Wars. Where have you been? Where have you been? Where You're clearly not a child of the 90s. <laughs> but basically it was people making extraordinarily expensive and complicated yeah. robots. Remote controlled. So they'd basically be like souped up, very souped up remote control cars that were capable of killing people. And they would make them fight each other. And they'd be flippers and they'd be spinners and they'd have saws on them. Flamethrowers. Flamethrowers. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. And then there were the house robots. Sir Kill a lot. Matilda. Yeah. Sergeant Bash. Yep. Uh, Shunt. Oh. Yeah. It, it was a great time. Wait, what, what was the sort of amateur. How, who, what were you doing before? Like, was so there, there is. There, like, all Robot Wars did, to my knowledge, was platform the already ongoing fighting robot championships an existing circuit it just put it on tv and gave it craig charles to present and jonathan pierce to do i mean some it's a very excitable commentary it's an easy win as the oh, yeah. like tv commissioner isn't it yeah just find something that's already happening in its entirety with yeah. an engaged community and i should say even even if you didn't catch the original one it did come back a couple of years ago dara o'brien was hosting it yeah i think he and hosted angela was, scanlon yeah i was, was going to say there was someone else as well yeah but, um, um, but yes, if we're talking about... Because one of the weaknesses of some of those robots were if they came up against the flipper robots and they weren't able to right themselves, yes. they'd be done for. Yes. Okay. So as arenas go, the Robot Wars arena, which as we've said is pre-existing, yep. pre-made, yep. with an engaged audience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so far showing up as very straightforward this but i do just want to i mean i guess there's a concern that i just want to think about other arenas because if the robot if the tortoises don't kill me in the robot wars arena there are blades there's flames yeah. there's you and, know and i mean i should say that if you're fighting them in the robot wars arena then you have the impartial house robots to deal with as well because uh, the tortoises the way that they compete with each other the males they've got spikes sticking out the front of their shells they're very robot wars animals and they fight by ramming each other if a tortoise rammed you into the realm of Sir Killalot, that mm. impartial house robot... His name 
he'd be picking you up and roasting you over the flamethrowers like I've seen him do many, many times. Okay, so it's are there other flippy-based places that are less dangerous for me or do I have to enter the robot as possibly the first human to enter the Robot Wars <laughs> arena? I mean, I'm going out on a limb and saying it will be the first tortoise to <laughs> enter the arena as well, but... Um, but the tortoise has a shell, and I am but soft flesh. Yeah, like butter. So, it's the places where things get flipped. Pancake day. <laughs> yeah. You flip burgers. Flip burgers. Um, but Fli- a spatula is not going to flip no. a tortoise. Not No, not a tortoise that can get to 100 kilos. Maybe there's an elaborate way to get them to flip themselves over if they're too heavy to be flipped. <laughs> Through the cunning pillars of lettuce and pulleys. <laughs> Um, or the other thing I had was a skate park, right? And they like go Kick up flip. the <laughs> Kick flip a tortoise, <laughs> put them all on skateboards, and they go up the ramp or like you know yeah. the yeah. the bowl, yeah. And then at the top they fumble it and they land on their back. Yeah. But that means I need to get tortoises onto skateboards. Yeah. I think it's a Robot Wars I think arena. Robot Wars is your best option. I think it has to be. Yeah. So then it's how. Do you remember how many flippy things there were? So there was. Uh, there was one flipper on the in the Robot Wars arena. There were a couple of hazards in the in the arena, the impartial hazards. There was the robot. There was the flipper. There was the pit, and there were the flamethrowers in the corner. And then, of course, there were the house robots keeping tabs on everything, hiding around on the edges of the arena if you strayed too far. Uh, but there was one flipper. But if you were controlling one of the robots with a powerful flipper. Then there was a great one. There was a fantastic robot called Wheelie Big Cheese, which but, was just shaped like a big wedge of cheese. But how many house robots are in the arena at once? Two. And so, RefBot. So it's me, Keeping score. me, RefBot, two impartial death machines, yeah. and a hundred kilo tortoise. Yeah. I think it's two tortoise. Yeah. Because one of them gets flipped. Yeah. And then the flipper's basically out. Yeah, that's true. It does only, yeah, it only works once, I think. Yeah. So once one of them is flipped, yeah. then the other one is there to bat me into a corner. But if, Just to kill a lot. Exactly. Yeah. But also, you know, I'm fending off. I think it's two. I think it's two because the flipper's got one hit. Yeah. There we go. And most importantly, Craig Charles. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> right. I've got a question here mm. from Lindsay. Lovely. On Instagram. Hello. Who asks... Snog, marry, avoid. Oh, good. Mammals, insects, birds. Oh, good. Right. I think there's an easy answer. There's an easy surface level answer. Yep. But then I think there are layers that we can dig into this. Okay. I think the easiest surface level answer Mm. is avoid insects. Yeah. Marry a bird interesting i think snog a mammal yeah i'm assuming by the way in all of this that humans are out of the question <laughs> oh yeah in the mammals category yes 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 because otherwise you know yeah uh i'd avoid them <laughs> um i think for me the the, the very quick answer yep. was avoid insects sorry yep. insects marry a mammal yeah snog the bird right now i put it to you mm. how are you snogging a beak <laughs> I was just thinking <laughs> which is I was going down the same path as you mm. until I thought how do you actually snog a beak yeah, right so you see 
I think I hadn't gone that physical about it. Well, if you're about to say that you have. <laughs> I, no, I was just about to say, I was just thinking of what my perceptions is of them. And yeah. I think birds are more superficially pretty. And mm-hmm. they put lots of effort into, look at me, I'm really showy, blah, blah, blah. Yes. But surface level, am I settling down to a long married life with a bird? I don't know. Oh, so I was going the other way. Perhaps a bit more pragmatism. Yeah. I was like, it will be easier to snog a mammal. Yeah. And marry, do more birds mate for life than mammals? So, with birds, a lot of... The the birds that mate for life Mm. are in the minority of birds. Many birds will just form monogamous partnerships for the breeding season. But many birds, probably the majority of birds, especially small birds, actually probably have the closest mating partner structure to humans. Right. In that they are socially monogamous, genetically polygamous. Oh, ho, ho, ho. So even in these pairs, so you say you've got a pair of robins in your garden. The pair of robins will form a monogamous pair for that spring when they're raising the chicks. Yes. But if you were to DNA test those chicks, which many studies have done, especially in small songbirds, it is highly likely that those chicks aren't all going to be from that father. Well, well, well. Okay. At the other end, there are the hornbills. Yes. So there are (laughs) certainly some examples who, if you fancied entombing your partner into a nest that she can't escape from. It's a very extreme end of marriage, I I accept. I will concede the point that it's not ideal for all involved. But there are things like swans, yeah. uh, corvid, things like jackdaws are very monogamous. Uh, so there are some... God, corvids are good. Yeah. There are some birds that are really, really monogamous. Hmm. Okay. But there's also a lot of superficial, you know, peacocks and yes things like that but yes. cranes of course yeah for every peacock there's a crane <laughs> as we've said for years <laughs> okay so i think we have an understanding of birds and mammals between those two categories we can come back to it but is there any world where we can get insects out of the avoid <sighs> hmm. are there any in- this is where i feel like there are entomologists screaming yeah at their speakers because there probably is. Yeah. When we did this, uh, the episode with Ash yeah. in the museum, we did what insect would make the best lover. Yeah. And she told us about some ones that were very caring. Yes, very. She's a big fan of the burying beetles yep. and told us all about how they're excellent parents and yep. all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it was family life built under a dying badger. Dead badger. <laughs> you know, yeah. like... Yeah. It's... It may be loving, but that doesn't mean I don't still want to avoid some elements of it. At another end of knowledge about insects, which is my end, butterflies are fit. Yeah, that that is true. So, but then some of them don't have mouth parts or moths. Some some insects don't have mouth parts. Mayflies don't have mouth parts. But butterflies do have a long proboscis. They do. So, So, do with that what you will. (laughs) Every cloud. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But no, I think yeah and i just thought that mammals would be better for inter the what you've got ones that their family bonds seem a bit stronger in mammals Mm. they tend to be because they tend to be more long-lived 
you know, you think of elephants, yep. um, the apes and things like that, that yep. form these really tight-knit groups, then I think I would probably... I'd, I'd want to marry into that family. I'd want to marry into an elephant's family. They seem yeah. like they look after each yes. other. You know, there's a lot of support there. Yeah, and you've so, done well there. Yeah, you you have, you're punching up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, so f- for me, I think even having thought about it a little bit more, I still think I'm snogging the bird, I'm marrying the mammal, and I'm avoiding the insect. Okay, now I put it to you. Snog, marry, avoid. Mm. Reptile, fish, amphibian. <laughs> okay. Snog, marry, avoid. Reptile, fish, amphibian. I think some reptiles are sexy. It's a big statement, but do you know what? I back it. <laughs> an eyelash viper. I'd snog an eyelash viper. That might be the last snog <laughs> you ever do. Worth it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not snogging a Komodo dragon. No. No, no but some of, the, some of the snakes are quite sexy, aren't they? Yes. So I think I'd probably snog a Snakes reptile. are sexy. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Marry. Frogs are just great, aren't they? They are. They really are. They'd be great. Yeah. They just seem like you'd have a lovely, wholesome time. And I feel as well, they're very, um, they're very local. Yes. Like, they're, they're, we know that they're um, not big migrators. Yeah. They're not, you know, it's like, if you, once you, once you got comfortable with a toad. It's homely. The toad is, you know, it's going to. Put down your roots. Exactly. Under yeah. your little log, yeah. you're all happy. Yeah. And then, I mean, arguably the insects of the sea fish many have said it <laughs> like the, one of the most overlooked groups of animals on yeah. planet earth yes we are also avoiding yeah i think yes i'm not snogging a fish no well are there any fit fish some sh- like blue sharks are sexy they're good they're 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 nice lampreys no 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 not at all that's a never-ending kiss <laughs> oh god um but i think there's some cute little... You know, like, if you were to marry a... Well, a guppy. A, no, like, <laughs> clownfish and things like that. Equally homely. Yeah. Living in an... an, 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 an living an, 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 in an enemy. Yeah. 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 Um, barracudas are fit. Yeah, they are, but a bit scary. Says, yeah, the, guy says the guy who was talking about snogging snakes. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's also what, you know... That's yeah. what elevates them. Yeah, yeah, that's the true. edge. Sec- the the secretary bird of the sea. Yeah, <laughs> is a barracuda. Interesting. Many have thought it, but few have dared to say it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think ultimately it's avoid fish, snog reptile, marry amphibian. Yeah, and it's avoid insect, and then we differ. Yeah, snog bird, marry mammal. For me. It's snog mammal, marry bird yeah. for me. And the bird I'm marrying is going to be a crane. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's fair. Yeah. yeah. And that was a Valentine's Day special as only geese know how. Thank you very much for listening to the new season as we kick things off. A big thank you if you are an old listener who is returning and an even bigger thank you if you are a new listener who has joined us and found us. Go back and listen to all the historic episodes. There's a whole load of Goose content up there for you to enjoy. Speaking of Goose content, go and like the Instagram page at HowManyGeese. And if you want to help the show out, please do leave a review on either iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening. The reviews really help us climb the algorithms. And And if you're feeling extra generous, there is always our Buy Me A Coffee page where you can leave us a tip if you enjoy what we're doing. Thank you very much for listening to the show. We'll be back next week. Cheers. Bye-bye.